politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to guard our liberties from us becoming like Australia. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house today, Monday, a brand new week after Thanksgiving weekend. It is November 29th, and it is also our 1,000th episode. I can't believe we've made it this long what it's been five six years we started off originally as a weekly podcast then we made it twice a week eventually it became every weekday and thanks to you guys this is one of the fastest growing shows uh certainly in the right of center sphere of news but then again this is really about a lot more than right and left Uh, most of you have come here since covid but some of you knew me before then um, and really everything we've done on COVID from a legal perspective, from a scientific perspective, from a political perspective, we've done that on every issue that matters. Our motto has always been focusing on the issues that matter at the time they matter and in the way they matter. So, you know, typically I'm not into talking about myself a lot because there's so much on the agenda. Oh my gosh, after being off since Tuesday. Um, We have so much to talk about in terms of just the science behind what's going on with the shots, what's going on with the ADE and the viral enhancement from the vaccines. And we're going to get to that. We're also going to have a special guest today, Governor Ron DeSantis, on the show. So we're not going to be able to get to all the news that occurred over the last five days. But for once, I did want to talk a little bit about this show, what we aim to strive for, and why it's so important now at the time we live in. Now today, very apropos, our sponsor, one of our longtime sponsors, has been with us for a long time, We The People Holsters. They make the best American-made holsters. A lot of people focus so much on the guns and ammo, and they forget that if you want to win a gunfight, you know, that's why you would carry to protect yourself or a loved one, you got to have a holster that sits properly and securely and really also a good EDC tactical gun belt as well. And We The People covers you for both. So if you go to wethepeopleholsters.com slash CR, uh, you could check out their gun belts, their holsters, their premium printed hoodies. They have some nice uh, uh, designs, uh, patriotic logos you could put on your holsters as well. Every holster gun belt comes with a lifetime guarantee. Uh, get an additional t- $10 off with offer code CR. Again, that's wethepeopleholsters.com slash CR. Never allow that perfect firearm to go without a perfect holster. So, you know, it's been a long journey. It's been a long journey together. And I think, you know, what sets us apart from other programs is, number one, I am fiercely independent. I am not a water carrier of any politician, of any party, I consider myself an independent. I think both parties are part of the problem, certainly not part of the solution. And you know whether you agree with me or not, and this is why we even have some liberals who listen, I'm certainly an unabashed conservative, although that term is really losing its meaning. Um, Is it conservative to fight for life-saving treatments for COVID that work versus stuff that doesn't work and is harmful? A lot of the issues we're dealing with now aren't even traditional 
right and left. It's really more up and down. It's the, these elites versus the people. And I think if we all united, uh, we would see that. So, you know, I'm fiercely independent. I'm always going to give you the truth. I'm always going to go in depth. You know, we don't just do a drive-by, but we'll follow up on the stories, anecdotes, data of an issue, be it COVID, be it crime, be it immigration, be it economy, foreign policy. We're going to follow up on it, social issues. And after listening to this show for a few months, you'll become an expert on those issues because we don't relent. We don't give up. Uh, that's always been my my motto every day I wake up and say, look, what could I give you that's new? You all see the same things. We, we, we know the headlines. What could I give over to you that's new? You know, just like on the left, you have an echo chamber on the right that's often unhelpful, off message, and doesn't really give you anything new. So on the inf information side, we're always going to try to strive to give you something new. What, tell me something I don't know. I want to learn something today. And then we have the component that's activism. Uh, to me, there's no purpose in commentating as an as ends to itself. I think information is important. But what do we do with it? And for example, those of you who have been with us, uh, you know, at least from last March, when COVID has been the predominant issue because it's really remade our lives, not the virus, but uh, the response to it and the planned coordinated attack on our liberties, our way of life, is what do we do about it? And really in light of the spirit of today's show, both celebrating our thousandth anniversary and also having Governor Ron DeSantis on the show in a couple minutes, one of the big activism ideas we're working on is making red states red again, making state legislatures great again, making self-governance relevant again. And again, it's focusing on the issues that matter, when they matter, in the way they matter. And this is why we've done something novel is we, we started an organization with no overhead, no cost, out of this show audience, where we've divided people into Liberty Strike Force teams based on your state. And, and you know, for now, we're focusing mainly on states where Republicans have the governorship or, and or the legislature, where there is something we can do to pressure, to focus on them. Our guiding principle now should be Thomas Jefferson. When the governments fear the people, there's liberty, but when the people fear the government, there's tyranny. And in most places now, people fear the government. We're seeing pre-enlightenment, draconian human rights violations. But if, you, if you're in a red state where 70% of the people voted for Trump, there is no reason why that majority, supermajority in many places, cannot reassert their will over elected Republicans who might be frauds, but at least understand that they need those people to get elected and they are forced to either convert to our cause or get defeated in primaries. And, and the upcoming primaries, again, is something that's going to be very important. We're going to have the Florida governor on, and, and nobody's perfect. I don't carry water for anyone. But I think we all agree that you, you compare to all every other elected Republican governor, senator, congressman, state legislator, it's very hard to see anyone doing what he's doing. And if we would select in primaries people like him versus what we have, it's, it's day and night. It's day and night. You have every other Republican out there 
downright promoting Fauci's principles rather than actively combating them. I shouldn't say everyone, um, but most of them are, and you know the ones that aren't are kind of milk toast somewhere in the middle. So you go to conaction.network if you want to join some of our teams. And we still are looking for team leaders and coordinators to put them together. We only have uh, really five, six weeks left until most states begin their legislative sessions. These are going to be the most important legislative sessions ever. The last thing standing between us and becoming like Israel or Australia and Europe is the decentralized system where you could have somewhat autonomous governing authorities in different states, different counties. This is really what stands between us and and becoming like the rest of the world. The blue states are completely gone, but the red states are following suit. How do we change that trajectory? So this is what we've always been about even before COVID. I'm always going to call the shots at any given time. Look, if conservative voters, if Republican officials really uh, abided by the principles they supposedly espouse, here's what they would be doing. And we get very specific. You know, we're talking now about all the things, ideas that need to be done on healthcare freedom and COVID, what should be done, what shouldn't be done, what the funding should be spent on, what it shouldn't be spent on. Strategies for legislative sessions, strategies for winning primaries. We're going to talk a lot about our push for constitutional amendments in state constitutions that are easier to change than the federal constitution, especially in the red states where we have strong majorities to get it on the ballot, affirm bodily integrity rights, affirm rights of life, liberty, and property uh, movement, free movement unrestricted, and that that does not change during a time of a so-called emergency, during wars and peace. Fundamental rights do not change. Nor does the science. There is never a scientific reality that should force us to just completely shred our liberties. So look, there's a lot going on. There's Waukesha is completely out of the news. We had, we had a black nationalist attack on an all-white crowd. Uh, we all know if the races would have been reversed, uh, we, we probably would be sitting in Australian concentration camps at this point, or at the very minimum, it would have changed our culture, um, almost like a booster dose of, of Floyd, what that did. But this is nothing. So that same black hole, memory hole, pigeonhole that they could create from news on Waukesha, that is happening with the vaccine injuries. And there's a lot of news on that. There's a lot of news on promising new therapies out, some about old ones you've heard. We obviously have the news about this stupid variant that you got to wonder if they even created, if they created the virus. They could certainly create variants. Um, But moreover, it's completely off message. This one, at, at least from what we know, appears to be mild anyway, but the vaccine doesn't work. So the exact opposite. They're panicking everyone and saying, get the vaccine. Really, it's milder. So, you know, you should use other treatments like you should use for any variant. But it doesn't work. The bigger concern is the current Delta. The enhanced version of Delta that's going everywhere else. That's the bigger concern. And that was created by the vaccine. There's a really good... News story at a trial site today, how um, ADE works with Delta. 
Meaning, we're not saying that the vaccines created Delta. It was always bound to happen, but what we saw originally is it was much milder. Mutations are standard if you create a coronavirus. This one was created. Coronaviruses will mutate. But it should have been more mild. Milder instead. This thing is, is really, you know, we, uh, mortality has been much worse under it. So the mechanisms of this virus actually lend itself to more ADE, antibody-dependent disease enhancement from the leaky vaccines. And we'll have some articles on, on, out on that this week. We're going to focus a lot in our written content on some of the more scientific stuff. But we're going to focus on our show this week a lot on what we can do. We got to get ready for state legislatures. We got to get ready for those sessions. We got to focus on the doctrine of least magistrate to interpose between the people and the federal tyranny to make sure that there is some respite for us on earth. But again, it's the in-depth coverage, it's the independence, and it's the activism. What can we do? It's the ideas. Look, like everyone else, I'm sure I have some stupid ideas, but there's some terrific ones as well because I'm always thinking about ideas. I'm never happy with where we are. None of us should be happy with where we are. What we're doing is not working. What I've been doing with the mainstream conservative movement the last you know, 15 years hasn't been working either. We got to think of new ideas. Now, our interview and our next segment is sponsored by a new, a very new sponsor, Enemies Within the Church, a new documentary written by Kerry Gordon, directed by Judd Saul, and produced by Trevor Loudon. Trevor's been a follower of my work. Um, it's funny. I mean, I'm Jewish, so on the one hand, it's not my place to say this, but I know all of you are going to agree with me that a lot of mainstream evangelical establishments have been compromised. Um, this has long happened to Jewish establishments, the Catholic Church, Mormon Church, uh, evangelical Protestantism was really the last thing standing, keeping American values in place. But now you saw, I mean, you saw this with the shutdown, all these churches going along with it. You see it now with all these, we see it a lot with the Southern governors, um, unlike Ron DeSantis, going into criminal justice reform and refugee resettlement rather than fighting the rainbow jihad, rather than the traditional things that the church was supposed to be doing. Um, they go along with Soros and the neo-Marxist garbage. So um, this documentary, Enemies Within the Church, it, it talks about the takeover of conservative Christianity by postmodern, postmodernism, um, you know, social justice, intersectionality, critical race theory, neo-Marxism. Um, this movie rocks the boat and in a good way. I fully endorse it. It's important for Christians and patriots who aren't Christians because Again, if you have a weak evangelical church or even a compromised one, um, that 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 really is the last thing standing between, um, um, you know, turning America into Australia, Europe. The reason why America has been slower to fall relative to other Western countries is because we had a strong evangelical presence in America. There's no question about that. Um, but this is. This is really changing rapidly, and we need a movement within the church that really needs to be the leader in taking back our country. I encourage you all to go buy the DVD and purchase the PPV streaming at enemieswithinthechurch.com. That's enemieswithinthechurch.com.
Now, as promised, we have on the line the Florida governor, the American governor, Ron DeSantis. And just as a brief introduction, he doesn't need much of an introduction to this audience. We have a dynamic going on in this country where we have one line of defense against federal tyranny. Really, one line of defense. This is Madison's design where he understood that if a federal government became tyrannical, you would have states that could interpose between the people and the feds, which is why they didn't get rid of those state lines when we created that constitution in 1787. And you look at the map of this country, and really, I speak to a lot of friends that are in legislative bodies in Wyoming, Idaho, North Dakota, uh, West Virginia, you name it, and they're all saying, why can't we do what Florida is doing? Why can't we do what the Florida governor is doing? And I was thinking, what if you had 20 to 25 states where you had governors uh, speaking out, offering a different path, particularly on the virus, but other issues as well, uh, to the federal government? One of two things would happen. Either, at a minimum, we would have freedom in 20, 25 states, but more likely, it would serve as a deterrent against the federal government, and it would also serve, particularly with regards to the virus, as a control group against what the other states are doing, and they wouldn't be able to get away with it. But unfortunately, there is only one Florida. The question is how to grow that success. Well, what better person to ask than the governor himself? Governor, thanks so much for joining us on this special episode today. Oh, happy to do it, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So I was looking at our records, and the last time I had you on, it's been too long, it was number 188. We're at 1,000 now. It was almost four years ago you were running for governor. Don't tell me you thought you would be dealing with issues the magnitude of which you're dealing with today. Um, how does this compare with what you thought would happen when you were running as governor? Well, if you remember, Daniel, I mean, I won the primary against kind of the anointed Tallahassee establishment career politician. No one said, everyone said I didn't have a chance to do that. Uh, we ended up winning that primary by almost 20 points, even though we got outspent four to one. So that was kind of the first step. And then I had to face uh, this Democrat who the media was put, pumping up to be the next great thing. And it was a blue wave year. It was very difficult, but there was a huge contrast. And I would tell people uh, this election is going to reverberate because if this guy gets in, he's going to change Florida in ways that we're going to uh, live to regret. Now, if you had told me at that time that you'd have to deal with a pandemic, I would say, OK, I would have never, ever imagined that that would give governors the license to lock kids out of school for a year, uh, to ruin people's lives, to, to limit their freedom indefinitely. But that's unfortunately what ended up happening. And so our election in 2018 was probably the most consequential governor election in the history of our state, because had I not won, Florida would be much, much different. We would have been the quintessential lockdown state. Uh, it would have devastated our economy and our social fabric. And all these people who are wanting to vacation here or move here and all that, it would have been an exodus out of this state. And so it was really, really consequential. When you and I talked back in 18, I, I thought it was important, but I did not think, nobody thought that it would ever come to this. And so we're now in a situation where 
if you have a governor that respects your freedoms and respects uh, the parents' rights and respects the ability for you to make a living and make your own health decisions, you live in almost a different country if you're in a different state where the governor doesn't respect that. Uh, where they don't view you as having individual agency on your healthcare decisions or an, even an ability to work or send your kids to school the way you want to. So yes, no one would have thought that, that it would have ever come to this. And I tell you, even once I became governor, if we had had something in 2019 and, and you had said, oh, within a year, people are going to be shutting down churches while leaving liquor stores open, everyone would have said you were nuts. They would have said that would have never happened. There's no way in America that that could possibly happen. And yet that happened in many states throughout the country. So you had heard a lot about the red state, blue state, different approaches. People have been leaving blue states for a long time, primarily because of taxation, but also some other issues. And I think COVID just totally totally exacerbated that because all these underlying differences in philosophy were really brought to bear. And obviously, Florida, we represented the sharpest contrast to kind of the blue state authoritarianism that they were running with. Uh, and so you've seen huge changes. You know, people will sometimes ask me, everyone wants to go to Florida. Well, what does that mean for, for political and all this other stuff? When I got elected governor, there were 300,000, roughly 300,000 more registered Democrats in the state of Florida than Republicans. Now, three years later, uh, we have almost 15,000 more Republicans. So there's been a 300,000 registration shift. And I think some of that is just we work hard on the ground. But I think a lot of that is people who are either coming here or people who are already here realize that, that this is the way to go for, for protecting people's freedom. So it was very consequential. And look, I, I thought I could make a big difference running. And we've done a lot, like transform our state Supreme Court. We've done a whole bunch of other stuff. But this was really, I think, I think the test of, you know, do you believe in constitutional government? Do you believe in protecting people's freedoms? Or can you just toss that aside indefinitely uh, and indulge in effectively is, is medical authoritarianism? And so we did our way. And I think the results uh, uh, speak for themselves because people vote with their feet. If we weren't successful, people would be fleeing here. Um, instead, people are wanting to come here because they do want to live in freedom. Well, I live here in Maryland, and I could say I got a lot of relatives moving down there. My son's losing his best friend is moving to Palm Beach County. So uh, our loss is your gain. And I, I think just to take this to the next level, this tyranny began with the governors and mayors. Uh, it came full circle. Biden got elected. Now we have the tyranny at a federal level. And the question is, where do we go from here as you watch um, Fauci is teasing out this new variant as somewhat of a pretext to I don't I don't know what the next phase is. Is it doubling down even more on the vaccines along with a lockdown, more masks, more remdesivir? I mean, it's who knows what the next phase is, but it's definitely not going to be something that's rooted in science, compassion, treatment um, and and liberty. And, you know, obviously, Everyone brings up the supremacy clause that, oh, well, you have the federal government is ultimately the, the, the arbiter. But isn't it true that when you reach a point when the federal government is violating life, liberty, property, freedom of movement, bodily integrity, and certainly we look at other countries where they're headed, and you look at the blue state governors and the federal administration, they're half a step behind that. What do other governors need to do 
to serve as that deterrent against the feds? Well, I think there's a couple things. I mean, one, we just have to understand we're, we're kind of in a different moment now than maybe in the past. I mean, for example, when the CDC will put something out, that does not have force of law in the state of Florida or any state. I mean, I know a lot of governors adopt whatever CDC says. I mean, they're not following science. They're basically more of a political organization at this point. However, it does have an important effect on the private sector. And you have a lot of businesses that will all of a sudden rush uh, to comply. And so when you're looking at the reach of the federal government, yes, it's what they could try to compel like Biden's mandates, but it's also when they're putting this stuff out, how do these particularly big businesses then react? And so what we tried to do in Florida, so for example, on the vaccine mandates, you know, we wanted to push back and say, no, in the state of Florida, uh, you cannot be compelled to do this. And we provided really strong protections for employees throughout the state of Florida. Now, we're also suing Biden on the vax mandate. And I think in the Sixth Circuit, I think it is going down, uh, at least for the for the OSHA rule. I do think eventually the contractor and the CMS rule uh, will, will go down. Uh, but uh, we really stopped, I think, a lot of private businesses who were not yet compelled to do this, but who were basically just trying to follow uh, the leadership, uh, so so forth, of the feds, uh, because they don't want to be crosswise with the federal government. And so what we did was able, all of a sudden, a lot of businesses just stopped what they were doing. They actually hired people back who had been fired. I mean, you actually have businesses that have fired people who've been working this whole time who have recovered from COVID, which many of these people have, uh, and have strong protection with, with the natural immunity, and they're firing them over these mandates. And so in Florida, a lot of those people have been hired back and people's jobs are protected. So it had an important role, yes, in putting pushing back on Biden, but also circumscribing the private sector who really doesn't want to be crosswise with the federal government. I think realistically, when you look at some of the stuff, one of the big problems I think that we have from a state perspective is something like the medical mandate through CMS. The yes. so CMS says if you don't mandate all your employees, then you don't get Medicare or Medicaid funding. Well, for a hospital, you know, that's the majority of their funding. And so they would be in a situation where it'd be very difficult. So yes, our protections apply to doctors, nurses, and everyone in the state of Florida, uh, but there's obviously a conflict that, that's created. So what the federal government does is they use their largesse as ways to basically compel compliance. So I don't think it's constitutional the way they're doing that, and, and we obviously will, will fight that. But, but that is just something that you've seen in really, really stark contrast. And Congress isn't legislating this, mind you. I mean, it'd be one thing if Congress legislated, if you don't do a mandate, then you lose funding. Now, we would still fight that, don't get me wrong. But there's been no change in law. This is just unilateral executive fiat that's having a massive effect on our society. And think about it, Daniel. We were told by Fauci if 50% were vaccinated, you'd have no more COVID surges. Well, that's obviously not true. Uh, you saw the southern states uh, over the summer. Now with the seasonal change, you see the Midwest is really hitting high levels. And I don't even think they've, they've reached their peaks yet. That's obviously in New England. You're going to see it move in other parts of the Northeast. So just when you're potentially setting records for hospitalizations, you are, on the other hand, firing potentially nurses in New York and Michigan and all these places uh, based on these, these vaccine mandates. So it's insane that it would come to that, but that's nevertheless uh, what we see. But the reason why I think they're doing it is because of the power of the purse and they're worried about losing the federal largesse. Now, 
I think you're right when you say the federal government, okay, supremacy on what if you're if you're acting validly, but what if you don't discharge your the duties that you have assigned to you under the Constitution, for example, with immigration? States have tried to push back over the last uh, several decades with the federal government not securing the border, effectively inviting in um, illegal aliens uh, coming into the country. And the courts have consistently just slapped almost all of that down. They say the federal government is supreme in the matter of immigration. States can't come in and try to undercut you know, whatever a federal policy is. And I think it's time that we take that and say, you know what, whether that was right or wrong, and I think a lot of those decisions were wrong, sure. that presupposed that the federal government was actually doing its job. Now we're in a situation, at least with illegal immigration, they've totally basically defaulted on their duty. So can we then, are we defenseless or we, can we actually come in? So in our next legislative session, we're going to be doing things to, to challenge uh, some of those, I think, uh, 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 orthodoxies that I think are no longer valid. We're also going to be looking at ways to say, okay, if the federal government's flying in illegal aliens from the southern border who shouldn't even be allowed in the country in the first place, and they're flying and they're dropping them at three in the morning in the state of Florida at an airport, uh, what can we do? Unfortunately, the federal government controls the airspace. I don't control that as governor. But what we can do is say, okay, these contractors that are being hired, uh, what other business do they do with the state? What, are, what is their economic footprint generally in the private sector? And we can say, if you are going to be doing this, then you're going to face uh, loss of business in the state of Florida. So we're going to be working on trying to hold the contractors accountable, uh, because I think in reality, when you're talking about flights, it's very difficult for us, given how the federal government has the, has the authority over the airspace. Is there any ability of several governors getting together and forming some sort of compact to say, look, obviously we all agree when it comes to repatriation removal, that's international, that is a federal job. But like you said, if the feds default on that and actually actively orchestrate caravans to come in, um, you know, Justice Robert Jackson used to always say the Constitution is not a suicide pact. And he said that even with regard to individual rights, um, certainly when it comes to uh, foreign nationals that don't have a right to break into the country. Now, all things equal, the feds should do their job, but if they don't, is is there more power in several governors doing this together rather than one going out on a limb? No, for sure. And I think reality is that, that you'd have to do. For example, in earlier this summer, Texas and Arizona asked for support to help with the border influx. So I sent people from Florida, some other states sent people, and our guys were very busy. There's a lot of people coming. They apprehended a lot of people. They would make felony arrests if you did something like had drugs on you, were involved in human trafficking or things like that, and then you turn them over to Texas authorities where they could be prosecuted. If they were just, though, doing illegal border crossing, they would be apprehended, and then they would be turned over to the feds. The problem is the feds would then put them on a bus and send them all around the country or put them on a plane. So what good does that do to just stop somebody, turn them over to the feds, when then the feds are facilitating their, their resettlement, illegally resettling them throughout our country. It didn't make any sense to me. So we, were, we did that for a couple of months. I said, you know what, we need to come back here and really focus on ways we can mitigate uh, what's going to end up happening with people being brought to Florida. However, 
I would absolutely support if Texas, Arizona, and, and they ask for a number of other states to come. And okay, if Florida, if our law enforcement is interdicting somebody that comes illegally, why don't we just have our own process to do a remain in Mexico? Uh, why don't we just prevent them from coming across the border in the first place? Because they actually will just let them come across. And so why don't we do a, a show of force to defend sovereignty? Because yes, it's the U.S.-Mexico border, but it's also Texas's border too. So I, I would support uh, a doing that. And I think that it's one thing to say the federal government has primacy in this field, but if they totally uh, ignore their duties under the law and the Constitution, the idea that we're defenseless, uh, I don't think that that, that holds water. Uh, but I do think you would need to get you know, a number of states that would be able to do it. And here's the thing. If you did it and people saw that you were serious about it, a lot of the illegal migration would really start to decline. They're only doing it because they know Biden's going to let them in. They And our guys would talk to people coming across, and they would say, well, when Trump was president, we uh, we would never have dreamed to do this because we knew now with Biden, you know, we know he wants us to come, so we're able to come. And these people are 99.9% are basically just economic migrants who would rather live in the United States. They're claiming asylum, but virtually none of them actually qualify for asylum under our current laws. And, and also, it's interesting, over the last few years, we saw the courts rule on the one hand that the feds have full supremacy over the immigration issue, issue, plenary power. But then, you know, the Second Circuit ruled with New York when they actually made it a felony to communicate with the feds. So you can't uh, complement uh, federal Im- immigration enforcement, but you could supplant it and undermine it. So that's the thing. Um, you know, the, the gist of what you're saying is that if one side gets into power and they eliminate the three outs per inning rule and then they just do what they want, you know, we we have to deal with the consequences of that. We cannot be limited to the consequences of their violations of the INA, for example, with uh, immigration. And getting back to covid um, what do you do philosophically, you know, as a free market guy, as a conservative, when you have years worth of non-free market policy? So uh, subsidy st- structures, uh, regulatory structure that creates this very narrow monopoly that's very close with government. Uh, they're in with government. They have all their lobbyists there. They work in concert together. So they box out all competition. So, for example, we're finding this with COVID, with uh, with getting proper treatment, with getting the right philosophy on how to treat it. They're like, well, all the doctors say this, all the hospitals say this. Um, you know, we were trying to push legislation in some states to say that uh, insurance companies can't box out uh, certain people from treatment if they didn't get the vaccine or that they can't fund remdesivir but not fund ivermectin. And everyone's like, well, Daniel, you're suddenly a communist now. Uh, I I thought you didn't like mandates. Well, because we have guaranteed issue community rating in Obamacare, it made it that probably until the rest of time, we will never have another um, insurance company break in. So they have a monopoly and there's nothing you can do now. And now they're using the principles they always fought against to use against us and say, hey, we're going to box you out of treatment. How do you kind of finesse that balance that we don't like telling businesses what to do, but they're only doing what they're doing because of years worth of unfree market principles and then capped, obviously, with you know everything they're doing on the carrot and stick approach with the COVID mandates that it, it, it essentially is a mandate even without a mandate. 
Well, gover- effectively, these are effectively gov- government-sanctioned monopolies. That's not a free market. I mean, these are massive companies that are basically in bed with the federal government. There's a lot of federal largesse flying around for a whole host of things. I mean, you you look at the testing industrial complex, how much money has been, been spent and how much these companies have made off that. Obviously, you get into other things like treatment versus vaccination and all this stuff, and the federal government's putting a, a big thumb on the scale there. So, I don't view it as a as a free market issue at all when you have that level of government involvement, because the fact of the matter is, if we had a truly free market, you would see uh, much different uh, actions uh, in that market than, than you see now. One of the things we've done in Florida is uh, my surgeon general's made clear, look, uh, doctors need to be able to practice medicine. And if they have approved treatments uh, that they want to use off-label, they have a right to do that, and the patients have a right to to get access to that. But you actually have some places where the pharmacies are told, don't fill this prescription if it's being used off-label. Now, these are drugs that are obviously safe and have been approved. You know, how much they affect COVID or not, I know, is a matter of some debate. But if a physician feels that that's something that, that is appropriate, they should absolutely be able to do that and being encouraged to practice medicine. And I think if you look at all this and you think about, okay, government's obviously made a lot of bad decisions throughout this whole thing. Some of the decisions I think initially were born out of panic and I think that they were they were wrong. But then you see, okay, well, when you see certain policies not working and you still double down on yeah. them, when you've seen a virus that started really rearing its head in January, February of 2020, and you've seen such little attention paid to actually treating people, you have to ask yourself, why would that be the case? I mean, wouldn't we want people to be able to get treatment? When I did the, the one treatment, the monoclonal antibodies that got emergency use authorization back in December of 2020, uh, President Trump used it on an experimental basis when he had COVID in October of 2020. Uh, it had Honestly, of all the things that have come out, I think it's the only one that's probably uh, uh, actually worked in the real world consistent with the clinical trial results of reducing hospitalizations and deaths. But this was out in December of 2020, same time the vaccines were out. And you heard almost nothing about it. Uh, Fauci, I don't think, ever mentioned it. I don't think Biden ever mentioned it. And so in the summer in Florida, when we started to see COVID, our our seasonal wave, which I think most people assume because we had a year and a half worth of natural immunity and a lot of vaccinations that you wouldn't have big waves anymore. That's what Fauci said. Nevertheless, we saw it. And I would ask the hospitals, how many of these people that you're admitting have gotten any type of treatment? And it was like almost none of them had done. So we rolled out these sites to do the monoclonal antibodies and it, and it worked very well. It helped a lot of people, but I was attacked for that. They attacked me saying, if you're providing early treatments, that you're a quote anti-vaxxer. And I'm like, what the hell does that have to do with anything? Vaccinated people are getting infected. It's not just unvaccinated people. That was obvious in July that that was happening, but they were attacking me. They were impugning my motives on it. And I'm just thinking to myself, yes, some of this is just corporate media doing their thing. I'm in the other party of them, so they're going to attack and 
and blame me for whatever they can. I get it. But there is something, I think, more sinister than that, where there's elements that honestly just did not want this treatment made available to people. And Biden even cut. He seized control of the monoclonals, and then he cut the availability of that to the state of Florida. You know, now we've had the lowest COVID for, for almost two months, and we have yep. the second lowest hospitalization rate. Uh, and so we don't need as much as we did in August when we were at our, our peak. But why would you have such hostility to people being treated who are infected? And they almost, they view it as like, oh, well, it's your fault. No one should get infected. Just wear a mask. But we know <laughs> that those interventions have not stopped the spread of this. So it's really, really troubling. And I think, I think it's cost a lot of lives. I think there's no question. Just the monoclonal antibodies alone, if that had been the standard of care, uh, where someone that's at risk tests positive and then they get it. I think in 2021, I think you'd had 100,000 fewer uh, yeah. COVID-related fatalities than, than we've had. And the thing that really uh, bothered me when we were going through this in Florida was no one was getting early treatment, and most of the physicians didn't even know that this was something that was available. Most of them were telling the patients, just go home and hope you don't get deathly ill. And then when they go into the hospital, they would all get remdesivir, which is never proven uh, to actually have had any benefit. And so you wonder, they're hostile to the treatments, which actually things like the monoclonals have a, have a actual data behind them. And yet, they're willing to do uh, remdesivir with no data uh, to support it. And I think obviously there's, uh, there, there's ideology at play and there's other factors at play. Yeah, and, and fun fact, the only two drugs they use in the ICU have black box warnings from the FDA for side effects. Remdesivir obviously doesn't even have a black box warning because it's not fully approved. But, you know, NIH warns about renal failure, liver toxicity. It's straight there in plain English. And it, it, it's something that I think all of us were taken by surprise. Um, obviously, what we're seeing now is a lot of patients. Uh, this show has become almost like a clearinghouse for getting people treatment uh, you know, a couple days ago, I dealt with someone from Texas who had the J&J &J shot. And, you know, we're told now they admit that, of course, you're going to get it, but you can't get seriously ill. So what happens is then they don't have the education to seek treatment and they think they can't get ill. OK, it's a cold. It's a flu. That's fine. Uh, but then their blood oxygen level starts dropping and they do get the pulmonary phase. And then, unfortunately, at that point, um, sometimes it's too late for the monoclonals because it's only antiviral. And we got the inhaled budesonide, the prednisone, the ivermectin, and we avoided the hospital. Um, but this is not getting out. And, and even in other states, we're finding people still don't know about the monoclonals or they, they um, aren't available to a certain amount of people. Uh, if you're under 65 or whatever, there aren't en enough of them. So th the question is headed forward. Again, what do you do when the government monopolizes health care? Uh, certainly crystallized with Obamacare, um, all the systems. We don't have independent doctors anymore. It's healthcare systems. And they have this standard of care that is just nobody is going to tell you it's working in the hospitals. Um, is is this something you would be willing to look at in the legislative session? I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. Ryan Drock, um, of Palm Beach County, he lost his wife, a 47-year-old teacher. Um, she was on a ventilator, I want to say, for 12 weeks. 
So, you know, the, the people that crash right away, often there's not much you can do. But if they're stable on a ventilator for 12 weeks, these are the people that we've really seen uh, success, not 100%. Um, with ivermectin alone, she was denied that treatment even on the volition of the family, meaning we're not even telling them you must do this. Just they're incapacitated, so we can't get them out. So it's, you know, there's no middle ground. Could we have a doctor come in and, and do this? Would you support some sort of a right to try legislation on that? Oh, I, I support right to try across the board. I mean, especially in these situations where you're looking at a fatal outcome. And so if they're that far along and they're on a ventilator, uh, I think if the patient, the family uh, wants something, then I think that they should have access to it. And again, a lot of these, these drugs that people have talked about uh, are approved for human use in, in other varieties. You know, the question is uh, on, on the COVID or not COVID, uh, how effective or not effective. And people have different views and there's different data points on that. But they should absolutely have the right uh, to try, uh, particularly in those circumstances. And so I don't understand the hostility to that. I don't understand why people are so so upset about that. In fact, I mean, some of the people who are the most hostile in other instances, they have supported things like like right to try in other areas. And so so I don't get it. But yes, I think it should be a patient doctor decision, and I don't think it's something that should be um, uh, that, that should be circumscribed by the government. But, I mean, the idea that you have to go into court just to be able to, in, in a desperate situation, try something that, that could uh, potentially be beneficial, uh, I think is ridiculous. And, and it's kind of funny that the news of the day is this new variant, and they're all warning uh, it might have viral immune escape from the vaccine. So then you would think you'd say, oh, we really need to double down on the monoclonals. But still, you don't hear a word about that. And again, whether it's it's uh, you know the steroids, whether it's fluvoxamine, whether it's ivermectin, we could talk about you know 20, 30 things, even the betadine nasal irrigation, even aspirin, even pepsin, whatever it is. There's no desire to even investigate and do clinical trials and look into some of the initial promising data. And I think think that's certainly very telling. I know you got to run one quick uh, exit question on the political side. There's no doubt that this election year is going to be very different than the, cli- than the climate you won in. You won in a blue wave. This is going to be a red wave. It wouldn't surprise me if it's going to be even greater than uh, 2010. There's no question Republicans will do very well. Uh, the concern is how do you prevent us from repeating the same cycle where we get Republicans in and it's kind of the same old, same old Republicans win elections, but Democrats continue to win policies? Well, my view is you you tell people what you're going to do, and if they elect you, you do it. And I think what ends up being the case is, yes, most of the things I do, people are happy with uh, because it's I'm reflecting the values of the state. But even on things where some people may disagree with me, they'll say, you know what, he said he was going to do it. And he did it. And they respect that. And I think the problem with the Republican Party writ large is if you go back to the 2010 wave, uh, nothing really happened uh, as a result of that wave. 2014 was a pretty good wave. You know, nothing really happened. You know, Trump's election. uh, I was in Congress for his first two years and the Republican majorities in the House and Senate there was a lot of fits and starts. There wasn't as much, um, I think, boldness as really the moment called for. And so in, in Florida, 
not only have I done what I said I would do, in fact, if you look at my inauguration speech and you look at the things that I outlined, things like voter integrity, uh, I talked about um, you know, making sure our economy was good, I talked about supporting law enforcement, all those things that I, that I listed, I've done all of them uh, already uh, three years in, and we're going to do more and add more to that. But you want to be in a situation where uh, you know, they say always under promise and over deliver. Well, what I've tried to do in Florida is, you know, I promise a lot, but then I over deliver on the promises. So I'm not just saying I'm not going to do anything and then surprise people. We actually put out a bold vision and then we execute on it. Part of it, though, Daniel, is understanding how to uh, enact an agenda at whatever level of government you're on. So, for example, when I got elected, the first thing I told my transition team, the general counsel, is I want all the constitutional authorities of the governor. I want the statutes. I want everything. I want to know what I can do unilaterally, what I would need concurrence of the legislature, what I would need to be able to do that they could veto or not veto. And I want what's my relationship with local governments? Because, so for example, when I came in, I removed the sheriff from Broward County who yep. had bungled the, the Parkland. I removed uh, the Palm Beach supervisor of elections. I got Brenda Snipes to resign from Broward supervisor of elections. So those were all very important. So you look at those and then you have to build your substantive agenda around actually being able to get it done. And I think that's what we've done time and time again. And I think that if you do get, and I think you probably are going to end up with uh, 240 to 250 House members and probably 53 or 54 senators. And so the question is, if that happens, what's going to change? Or is it just going to basically be business as usual where there's nothing much that changes? And if things don't change after having a big wave election, uh, I think you're going to continue to see a lot of Republican voters uh, that are going to be frustrated. You know, the thing about Florida is Republican voters are really happy with what we're doing. Um, you know, you don't see people, there's people that didn't vote for me last time that will say, I'm definitely voting for you in 22. There aren't as many people who voted for me in 18 who say, oh, no, you know, we're, we're not going to vote for you. Those people are going to be with us because we've delivered on what we want to do. It's the right thing to do substantively to advance good policy, but also politically, it's the smart thing to do. Do what you said you were going to do, deliver on your promises, make sure you're showing a contrast with the left and people will want to be there to support you. So hopefully our guys are a little bit wiser, but I think you'd have to go back to 94, Daniel, to find a situation where Republicans won uh, an election and then proceeded to, to implement an agenda. And I know Clinton and them went back and forth on some things. We won some, we lost others, but at least they followed through on what they said for, for a year, year and a half. And it seems like 2010, 2014, and hopefully not 22, but it seems like what happens is, you know, you change majority and then really nothing much changes at all. And I'm not interested in just kind of slowing the decline. We need to reverse the decline and actually get the country uh, back on the right track. I think Florida is showing a pathway to do that. I think some other states have done some good things. Uh, but if we are fortunate to win a national wave election, uh, we've absolutely got to capitalize on that opportunity. And if this could be done in a Trump plus three state, certainly in the Trump plus 20 plus 30 states where they already have trifecta supermajorities, there certainly is a lot more that can be done. Thanks so much for joining us today with your vision. We really look forward to having you back again during the legislative session in a couple of months. And please wish us, uh, you know, on behalf of this audience, uh, give our love and prayers over to the First Lady for a speedy recovery. 
Okay, thank you all. God bless everybody. Take care. Take care. So there you have it, folks. That was the Florida governor, America's governor, Ron DeSantis. Um, You know, what other governor would speak in long form for at least a half an hour about his vision very confidently? You know, again, I don't carry water for anyone. Um, You know, obviously, I've been friends with the governor, the first lady, um, you know, for a number of years. I've known him when he was in Congress and... It's funny, he the, the way he is publicly, that's how he is privately. I mean, that's that's how he thinks, that's how he talks. Um, what you see is what you get. And you look at the contrast between someone, again, I mean, this is a growing red state, but it's still, you know, somewhat competitive or has been until now. Um, Trump won by three, three and a half points, and that was considered a landslide in Florida history where it's always razor thin. You look at states like Idaho, Wyoming, the Dakotas, Texas, Oklahoma, uh, Tennessee, Kentucky. Why aren't we, why don't we have other states like this? Alabama. We have horrible governors in some of these other states. Not only don't they sound like him, they sound like Fauci. They're out there. I mean, the Indiana governor, they have super majorities there. They can't even get a watered down religious exemption bill there. Uh, I'll see what happens this week if they're going to continue in the legislative session there. But the governor is like he has his T-shirt of welcoming Afghan refugees. I mean, this is what they care about. You have other governors, you know, I, I was going to get to crime. I didn't have time to talk crime with uh, DeSantis. But he actually vetoed a bill from his own Republican legislature uh, loosening making things easier on some juvenile criminals rather than tougher at a time when juvenile crime is becoming a huge problem. And you have these other governors out there that are like, we can't open the jail doors quickly enough. And my point is, if we only exerted our influence over the primaries, over the legislative process, over the gubernatorial actions, and got on their cases, forget about even Washington. You know, we talked a little bit about at the end about, you know, what would happen if Republicans took back Congress. But to me, the bigger thing is what the the degree of power Republicans already have in the states and what they're likely going to acquire. In other words, what Republicans already have in terms of trifectas in some of the states in the South and the Rocky Mountains and Great Plains, they're going to likely get in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, probably Minnesota as well um, in in a year that the Democrats are going to get washed away. It wouldn't surprise me if they wind up with 33 Republican governors and, I don't know, 30 trifectas. That is very possible if you look at the balance of of some of the legislatures. So this is what we're about here. Action, action. How do we get more governors? I want you to understand no one's perfect. There's more that could be done in Florida, and we we hear all the time, um, you know, People from Florida complaining that they still have to wear a mask. And, and he himself conceded that. He was like, look, I mean, it, you know, you have the Medicare, Medicaid mandates. They're using their leverage to get the private businesses. So now they're fighting back. Um, you know, the question is, could you do what he did with the vaccine mandate on maybe the mask mandate as well? But imagine if every other Republican governor would be exactly the way he is. And then now imagine if the legislature and the attorney general would be that way. I don't think we would have even gotten to this point nationally because that would have been such a deterrent as well as a control group. 
It would be a deterrent on that behavior. But instead, you have all these Republican governors just echoing this nonsense. So that's where we are. Now, I know we didn't get a chance to go into some of the news of the day. There's a lot going on. Um, you know, you have... Man, there's, there's so much research I wanted to go into. Um, researchers from Oxford... They paired 10,000 vaxxed people against 10,000 unvaxxed from January to August, and they found that efficacy, you know, for advancing to the ICU, that was the endpoint. How many people, you know, were landed in the ICU? For over 60, there was zero efficacy. Zero efficacy. Again, this is January to August. Certainly now. So this was a large part of the period where it wasn't leaking as much. It never really was effective for people over 60. Because remember, that time when things were good, you know, March, April, May into June, it just, COVID kind of disappeared. And then they also found, they studied long COVID. There is zero effect. Very interesting. The vaccine offers zero protection from long COVID. So you think, oh, well, maybe ameliorate some symptoms for some people. Um, so maybe you don't get long COVID. No, whatever numbers you have of people getting long COVID, vaccine did nothing for that. Nothing. So there are a lot of problems. So there's a lot of news on Merck's drug, Molnupiravir, it's bombing out. I think the FDA is going to meet this week and discuss uh, approval for them, and I'm sure they're going to get approval. Even their own numbers, they say they cut their efficacy in half, but if you look at it carefully, it actually shows negative efficacy at certain stages, which indicate it does cause some problems like remdesivir. So we're going to talk about that. There's a lot more on vaccine injury. None of this is getting out. None of this is getting out. This is insane. And we're here to get the truth to all of you. Now, obviously, one of the ways that we are different than other shows, the ultimate form of activism is trying to save lives. And, you know, just over the weekend, I was dealing with someone um, who, uh, you know, didn't take my advice, didn't get order from Seven Cells, their ivermectin early on. And they were ready on day seven when they came to me. And then, of course, it was Wednesday evening, right before Thanksgiving. So it was horrible because then you have the mixture of you got to get a doctor. So I got one of my guys. But then even then, you got to get a pharmacy. So the problem is the only places, you know, seven cells, the idea is, it, you know, they're quick, but it takes four or five days. That's to have on hand first. So if you don't do it, I mean, it's too late, especially when you're on day seven. And like, oh, his blood oxygen level dropped to 92. I'm like, oh, great. Um, so the problem was that any independent pharmacy, they're not the type that's open 24 seven on Thanksgiving. So we had to wait all the way till Friday. We got him the prednisone right away. Um, and some other things, but the key things was ivermectin and then the inhaled budesonide. We got the budesonide, but the problem is there's a shortage of, of nebulizers. People can't find them. It's crazy. This is another classic thing. You know, we were speaking about basic things, nebulized budesonide. That, that's standard 
you know, there's different things. There's a buterol some use, but anyone in respiratory distress, asthma, COPD, pneumonia, this is standard of care. Our government should have made that available to everyone. You can't get nebulizers. So unfortunately, we probably stabilized him a little bit from totally dying and crashing like some people do, but it was hovering around 90, and he did check into the ER, but luckily by then he was able to check in with the meds, so he had it with him and is doing good, and it worked, and he's, he's turned him around, but, and luckily it was more of a rural hospital, so they were they were a little better in terms of the culture and what they do for people, and you know, they were kind of okay with what he was doing. Um, but, this, the, you know, this is everywhere. I have the article on Wednesday right before Thanksgiving. This case in Texas, the sheriff's deputy, it's heartbreaking. Weeks on a ventilator and they're covering the feeding tube. You have this case in Illinois where this visitor from Hong Kong was turned around because of a court order after a five-day course of ivermectin. Um, you know, five days. And uh, he, he extubated himself. And they're still appealing the decision in court, the hospital lawyers. That's how evil this is. So again, look, if you guys have other ways of getting ivermectin, get th- th- that's great. But again, if you don't get it from 7cells.com now, promo code Daniel, I don't make money off of it. You've got to get it on hand. Because scrambling later on, it's all timing. You can't wait until you're ready in the pulmonary phase. And then again, I, I cannot stress enough the importance of betadine. Betadine, again, you buy it as a 10% solution that's too much and you don't need it. You water it down to 1%. What that means is like this. For your nose, it's all on the FLCC's website. For your nose, you dilute it. Um, nine parts distilled water. Because it has to be distilled water um, or saline, because you know you don't want to put regular tap water up your nose. You can get a sinus infection. Um, nine parts uh, distilled water. You get one of those jugs. They come, you know, a huge amount, very cheap. Um, and betadine, and you make a concoction with a measuring cup. Put it in a spray bottle so it's easy to use. And before you go to sleep, so in case you're around people, you're incubating incubating the virus. It will reduce the viral load. It 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 it, it might be more effective than, than ivermectin and nitazoxanide. And by the way, you can get both from Seven Cells. I recommend both nitazoxanide and ivermectin together is probably the best um, uh, concoction we have. Um, but but the betadine, I mean, it it lowers the viral load. And you if you do that prophylactically, I mean, you could really avoid even getting it or certainly getting it with any any meaningful symptoms. Um, everyone I know who has done that, they've they barely even got a fever or much of anything, uh, much less, you know, any pulmonary. And uh, for, for your mouth, it's more forgiving, you know, what you put up your mouth. Um, you don't, you know, you don't drink it, you gargle it. So, you know, you just take water, it could be any water and just, you know, drop some iodine in it a certain amount, enough to really kind of color it, mix it up. Don't drink. I mean, it's not the worst thing in the world if you drink it, but don't drink it. Um, and swoosh, uh, swoosh your mouth with it. And then afterwards, use you know mouthwash, one of the mouthwashes of um, Act or uh, um, what's that other one? Not Listerine, but um, Scope has that, uh, forget the name of the chemical that seems to work against this. I mean, this is simple research, simple research that our government refuses to talk about. Obviously, keep up with the vitamins and the vitamin D, you know, certainly in the winter, 
this is what we're about, saving lives, saving property, saving human rights, liberty. This is why I'm so thankful for all of you guys. Um, you know, in honor of our thousandth birthday, I wish for all of you to send this around to everyone you know. I don't need the ratings. I don't need the money. I don't earn a lot of money. Um, I do it because I feel like I'm one of the few pe people around that has a platform where I could literally say whatever I want. I could literally swing for the fences. Nothing holds me back. I just go where my, where you know my research goes on a given policy issue, where my heart goes, and I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna you know there there is nobody that's going to stop me, J just because of a certain party or movement or organization or political figure takes a stance on an issue that is not going to color me um, if if my uh, research runs contrary to that. And that's the thing. You know what you're going to get uh, is with me, and, uh, and and that's kind of how the Florida governor is at an elected level. Um, again, I don't worship anyone. If, if he were taking a position I wouldn't agree with, I, I it's not like I'm going to start uh, changing because of that. Um, that. That's what it means to be an independent-minded conservative, uh, as opposed to just one of these, you know, hacks, which unfortunately is too commonplace in this industry. Um, and most of all, you know, I'm thankful for for the Blaze that they stand behind my work, particularly the COVID work. They're very proud of it. Um, they've given me this platform where, you know, at a minimum, I don't earn a ton of money, but I can at least <clears throat> support my family. I don't have to sell my soul anywhere. I don't have to do anything else. I could focus 100% of my time and effort on all of this um, research to give people the best information, but more importantly, to give you the best ideas and tools of what to do with it. And it's not just me. Uh, you know, over time, you know, I started getting emails in the early days, uh, four or five years ago. Um, you know, because for many years I was just a columnist. I would appear often on other people's shows. I would fill in for a certain hosts. Uh, and then, you know, my buddy Joe Koss, who was a co-worker here, he's no longer here, but uh, he got me started. And some of you who remember those first uh, weekly shows, uh, he would kind of moderate it and then, like, ask me questions. And that's how we got started out in some of those early uh, episodes, those first few episodes there. And, oh, my gosh, time has just flown by. And uh, this has really been a blessing to me uh, I've learned so much from the emails I get from you. You could always email me, dharwitz at blazemedia.com or danielharwitz at startmail.com. Um, I've learned so, so much, so much information, so many ideas, uh, so many of the themes that I've pushed. You guys will often send me a story from your state that jives with everything we're saying. And, you know, sometimes I've built a lot of uh, ideas off of that. So this is a really smart dedicated uh, audience that is just steeped in godly values. We're a family. We're a movement. Um, you know, we can't just sit back, rest on our, our laurels, and, hey, you know, I, I got a great show. People know of me. I make some money. I'm great. I'm famous. Wow, this is awesome. Let me sell my book. No, you know, you only live one life. You only live one life. And... I want to be able to obviously succeed, but if we don't, I want to be able to look our, you know, my children in the eye and tell them, God gave me an opportunity to influence, to disseminate information, to educate a public 
with an unfettered platform, and I left nothing on the table, nothing that might have been able to help move the ball forward. You know, sometimes I feel very guilty that I don't spend enough time with my wife or kids, that at night I'm constantly, you know, on the computer and doing stuff or on the phone collaborating. And I, you know, I, I, it, it weighs on me and it's something you got to balance. But, you know, and I, I don't need to do this for my job per se to meet my obligations for my employer here. But I, I know that there are so few people that have the knowledge, the acumen, the desire, and the just unfettered platform. You know, a lot of you are just as smart, if not smarter than me, and could totally do the same thing I'm doing. You could have a show, you could write columns, you could do the research, you could do better research than me. But you have other jobs or you're, you know, you're in a position where you can't speak out, which is most people, because of the fascism that's taking place. And I'm blessed that nobody could touch me. Nobody can touch me. Um, and by the way, you know, if iTunes for whatever reason or Google Play ever start going after this, you could always get the show at Blaze Podcast. We always have our own independent platform, so we're always gonna be up on there. Again, please give us a five-star rating. Thank you for celebrating our thousandth show together. Henceforth, we're just going to name them by the date. We're not going to go past that, so we're going to retire the numbers after today. Really looking forward to get, getting back to some of the news of the day tomorrow. God bless you all. And I'm telling you folks, as long as I have breath in my air, in my airwaves, I'm going to continue this for another several thousand shows, if not tens of thousands of shows. And we will take back our liberty.